Let's begin by reading the first portion of our passage, Revelation 13. Let's read verses 5 to 7 to begin with. And there was given to him a mouth speaking great boasts and blasphemies, and authority to act for 42 months was given to him. And he opened his mouth in blasphemies against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle, that is, those who dwell in heaven. And it was also given to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation was given to him. David Guzik remarks that Blasphemer may be a more accurate title than Antichrist for this end times dictator. As much as anything, this beast is a man who speaks against God to blaspheme his name, his tabernacle, and those who dwell in heaven. End quote. I would only add to that appraisal that it seems to me that blasphemers, be they against God or institutions or man, only betray their own impotence and perhaps even cowardice. We've all run into people who talk a fierce game, only to cringe and cower away when blows begin to be thrown. That one is... <laughs> The beast may have power over the suffering populace of earth, but he can do nothing but badmouth the king and populace of heaven. Also revealed in this passage, verses 5 to 10, which we'll be covering today, is the lamentable fate of the short-sighted. Throughout history is documented the fate of those who took the seemingly easier path of compliance even collaboration. Boy, you're spread out today. If I go this far too far, then I pull my cord. That was, that was me, Zeb, don't worry, sorry. The easier path of compliance, even collaboration, rather than resistance. What happened to the women in France who slept with the Nazis? What happened to the Vichy regime that bent the knee to Hitler once the nation was liberated by the Allies? Here in this passage, and of course throughout the narrative of the eschaton, that dalliance and friendship with the enemy may bring ease for the moment, but it's a poor trade-off for what one will suffer for eternity. As to the text itself, what strikes me, first of all, in this passage is how passive it is. Did you notice that? The object is the beast from the sea. That's who we're talking about here, Antichrist. And from everything we've read thus far, this person will be an extraordinarily, remember he was way back in the first seal. What was the first seal? Antichrist, on the white horse. 
This person will be an extraordinarily, even uniquely powerful individual. Yet this passage is peppered by statements about things being given to him by someone else. That's passive. We might expect to read, he spoke arrogant words and had authority for 42 months. He did this. That's active. That would be a strong, active description of a worldwide ruler. Instead, we read, there was given to him a mouth, speaking arrogant words, as if even the mouth he doesn't have, the mouth has been given to him, and those, that mouth is going to speak arrogant words and blasphemies. And authority to act for 42 months was given to him. In verse 7, we have a similar situation. It was also given to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them, and authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation was given to him by someone else. I believe this is saying two things. Really only one thing, but considered from two directions. First is that Satan is calling the shots and he can only do what the Lord God permits. Ultimately, all this that's being given to Antichrist ultimately comes from God. It comes from Satan, but God is sanctioning what Satan is doing. We may trip over that, but it's the truth. In fact, these... This last book in the Bible makes it clear that God is in charge. Whatever power Antichrist possesses has been given him by Satan and ultimately God. Second, from the opposite direction, is that Antichrist is little more than a puppet. He may even think he's in charge, as most dictators do. But Satan has entered him. The beast does not possess anything, but whatever he was prior to this possession is now himself possessed by the pure evil of Satan. Satan will indeed enter the beast, just as he did Judas Iscariot, Luke 22.3. And Satan entered into Judas, who was called Iscariot belonging to the number of the twelve. John 13, 26, 27. Jesus then answered, That is the one for whom I shall dip the morsel and give it to him. So when he had dipped the morsel, he took and gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. After the morsel, Satan then entered into him. So there truly is a possession So now we're ready for verse 5. There was given to him a mouth speaking arrogant words and blasphemies. And authority to act for 42 months was given to him. My mom's sister to my older brother and me, Auntie Norma, old maid Auntie Norma, liked to give things to people. After she died, Linda and I were taking care of her, well, everything. 
and found you know all these statements and and check stubs given to this organization given to this she was a great committee she was on every committee in marshalltown she was doing everything and she was giving 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 and she was generous toward family members gave great birthday presents but there were invariably strings attached a quid pro quo I'll pay for your schooling if you'll study this. I'll give you the money if you promise to. Satan works the same way. He likes to give things to people, especially his servants. But there's always the quid pro quo. He tried it with Christ and failed. He will one day try it with Antichrist and succeed. So Satan, as it were, we see in this chapter, he rises up out of the sea, Antichrist. Satan, Satan is on the seashore. He's the, he's the, the uh, uh, dragon. He's the dragon. And he's standing in the sand of the seashore, getting his toes wet. And... He brings up Antichrist from out of the sea. And then he starts giving these things to him. So Satan, as it were, creates the beast. And then he begins giving him things, outfitting him for his service. A mouth speaking arrogant words and blasphemies. Authority to act for 42 months, three and a half years. To make war with the saints and to overcome them. Authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation. In exchange for this power and authority, of course, is required complete subservience to Satan's program. Not to mention his soul. Not a good deal. There was given to him a mouth speaking arrogant words and blasphemies. From our perspective, it seems odd that God would grant to Satan and his disciple permission, not to mention the skill, to blaspheme himself. That, that's kind of hard to digest. Just as it seems odd to us that Father God for so long suffers the company of that fallen angel in the precincts of heaven. That's hard to understand too. But God is sovereign, so we cannot question his methods. We may scratch our heads and wonder. That's fair enough, of course. But we must eventually bow before his superior wisdom and authority and acknowledge that he knows what he's doing. We run into that every time we lift up prayers to him. We pray for this, we pray for that. But ultimately, we have to say, your will be done. Whatever he does is right. The verse continues. And authority to act for 42 months was given to him. Apparently God too can demand a quid pro quo. This for that. For he grants to the beast the authority to do his worst, but only for so long. 
there will be a hard-coded cutoff point. When the Messiah returns, there will be countenance no more of such arrogance and blasphemy. That's it. The clock is running and the mainspring will snap after three and one-half years. I was waiting for Pastor Jeremy to liken the you will see angels ascending and descending on the Son of God. I was waiting for him to reference the second coming of Christ when he comes with angels. But must not be correct. Okay. That's why it doesn't fit. Clouds. Okay, verse 6. And he opened his mouth in blasphemies against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle, that is, those who dwell in heaven. We've just come out of, and sadly have just begun afresh, a political season. For months there's been a lot of hot air, a lot of nonsense, a lot of lying flying through the air. And there will always be those who believe it. Daniel's prophecy foresaw the arrogant nature and methods of this dictator. If you wish, you can turn to Daniel 7, but you don't have to. Well, you don't have to do anything. Daniel 7, verse 8. While I was contemplating the horns, behold, another horn, a little one, came up among them. And behold, this horn possessed eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth uttering great boasts. Verse 11, then I kept looking because of the sound of the boastful words which the horn was speaking. Daniel 7, 20 to 21, and that horn which had eyes and a mouth uttering great boasts and which was larger in appearance than its associates. Daniel 7, 25, He will speak out against the Most High and wear down the saints of the Highest One. So, as Daniel points out, he's really doing two things. He's boasting of himself. He's saying, look at me, how great I am. But in the, he's also bad-mouthing holy God. MacArthur writes, Antichrist's arrogance will surpass that of anyone else in human history. He will be Satan's mouthpiece, voicing his master's frustrated rage against God. He will also be the supreme blasphemer in a world filled with blasphemers. So hardened will sinners' hearts be at that time that God's judgments will elicit not repentance, but more blasphemy. That's John MacArthur. This profane slander will be not just directed toward God in general, but toward first his name, that is, everything that represents who he truly is, his qualities, his attributes. In God's word, someone's name is them. It represents them, everything they are. So everything God is, he slanders. His tabernacle, that is his tent where he dwells. Heaven for the moment. 
and those who dwell with him. The holy angels, the ones who just defeated Satan in the recent heavenly war, he, well, he's, now he's bad-mouthing them. The redeemed from millennia before, as well as the recently arrived from church. Arrived from church? Did I just say that? <laughs> arrived church from earth. That's a little different, isn't it? Walverd writes, it's evident that blasphemy is not an incidental feature of his kingdom, but one of its main features. It's not a bug, it's a feature. It was also given to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation was given to him. In our last session, I noted the organized groups of saints we know will be on the earth at this time. The two witnesses, remember them. The 144,000 remnant of Messianic Israel and the group of Messianic Jews that has recently fled into the wilderness to a place God prepared for them. All these we know are on the ground. But there will also certainly be individuals and small groups, much like there are today in Red China, worshiping God and following Christ Jesus privately and secretly. And Red China also gives us an illustration of what happens, what can happen to those. Satan will make war against all these. We can e easily imagine his stormtroopers beating down doors and shattering windows, just as Red China does now to ferret out these home churches. Just as the SS troops and Nazi mobs destroyed property in Germany in a violent act to root out Jews and send them to concentration camps, it was called Kristallnacht, the night of broken glass. And the verse continues, and authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation was given to him. <clears throat> Back in the day, Satan had tried to entice Jesus with the very same carrot. Let's read that. Matthew chapter 4. Turn, please. <clears throat> Matthew 4. Let's see, that's New Testament, isn't it? Matthew 4. Verses 8 to 11. Oh, wait a minute. I'm in Mark. I didn't think that made sense. Okay, Matthew 4, 8 through 11. Again, the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and ministered to him. There was the quid pro quo. Back in the first century with the Son of God, it didn't take. But this time the devil will have a willing dupe to accept the role. <clears throat> and who can say when this step will 
actually occur. I've posited that the making of this revived Roman Empire would almost certainly take place gradually. Something like that doesn't happen overnight. It happens over time and probably have its beginning in the years prior even to the rapture and tribulation. <clears throat> There's nothing to preclude the possibility that the world, as well as the church, could have been suffering under this aggressive empire for some time. Meanwhile, perhaps there's a lowly clerk in the organization working his way up the corporate political ladder. Perhaps the evacuation of the church at the rapture is the spark that vaults him higher to the top. During the first half of the tribulation, he's scheming and plotting for the top spot of dictator. Even as he sweet-talks Israel, Daniel 9.27, and fools the world into thinking he's is its necessary savior. Once he takes full control at the midpoint, the beast will rule with absolute authority over, quote, every tribe and people and tongue and nation. That covers every last soul on earth. Now let's read the second part of our, of our uh, passage, verses 8 to 10. And all who dwell on earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be taken with a sword, with a sword he must be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. What translation is that? What version is that? ESV. Ah, okay. Thank you. As if to drive home the point of verse 7 further, verse 8 covers the same ground but in a different way. Verse 7 declares the scope of the beast's sovereign and political rule, while verse 8 declares the scope of his religious rule. All who dwell on the earth will worship him. Everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of the life I always do that. It's, there's no the there. The book of life of the Lamb who has been slain. Whereas his political authority knows no bounds, encompassing every tribe and people and tongue and nation of the world, the beast's religious authority is limited to those who dwell on the earth. Now, at first glance, this would seem to include every living human being, right? That's... that's how we read it, but it does not. Verse 8 employs two means of delineating those who worship the beast from those who do not. The first is the phrase, all who dwell on the earth. This is repeatedly used in the Revelation to denote unbelievers. Let's look at just two examples. Revelation chapter 6, 
Back to chapter 6. Who has that? Nine to ten. I'm sorry. Yeah, only, only that. Revelation six nine to ten. And when he opened the fifth seal, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Now here the martyred saints underneath the altar are crying out for vengeance and justice to be poured out on those who dwell on the earth, meaning those who had slain them. Not everyone on earth, just those who had slain them. The second example even more obviously describes unbelievers. And notice how it repeats the phrase from 13, chapter 13, verse 7, about the two witnesses. Uh, chapter 11, verses 9 to 10. Tina. And they of the people and kindreds and tongues and nations shall see their dead bodies three days and a half, and shall not suffer their dead bodies to be put in graves. And they that dwell upon the earth shall rejoice over them and make merry and shall send gifts one to another because these two prophets tormented them that dwelt on the earth. What? How Elizabethan. Make merry. What, what version is that? Ah, Elizabethan. So in that scene, it's clearly those antagonistic toward God and the messianic message that has been delivered by the two witnesses who are those who dwell on the earth. But John reinforces this connection with a more explicit definition. Everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of the life, book of life of the Lamb who has been slain. Now, Depending on what version you have on your, in your hand, uh, you can see that we need to chew on this a little bit. This is a problematic portion of the verse, which we'll address in a moment, but first the obvious. As David Guzik points out, quote, the idea is that worshiping the beast and having your name in the book of life are mutually exclusive. If your name is listed in the Lamb's book of life, you will not be worshiping the beast. If you are worshiping the beast, your name cannot be listed in that book. It's one or the other. As Walverd states it, all who are not saved will worship the beast. Those who are saved will not worship him. That's the easy part. But the original text is potentially problematic, or at least confusing. Once again, if you could see all the various versions spread out before you, uh, you'd see how they're, how they're different from each other. The Greek is, literally, whose names have not been written in the scroll of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. That's the literal Greek. 
whose names have not been written in the scroll of life of the Lamb, slain from the foundation of the world, which is how the King James versions and the NIVs have it. They put it in that order. That is, from the foundation or creation, as the NIVs have it, of the world modifies the lamb slain. The NASBs and ESV reorder the text to have, quote, from the foundation of the world modify everyone whose name has not been written in the book of life. Walford works it around in such a way to include both. The simplest explanation here seems the best, namely that their names were written in the book of life from eternity past. This was made possible by anticipation of the future dying of the Lamb on their behalf. But I think I favor David Guzik, who comes up... uh, I favor what he came up with, keeping the order of the original Greek. The Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. This is what he writes. This deeply meaningful title for Jesus reminds us that God's plan of redemption was set in place before he even created the beings who would be redeemed. God wasn't surprised by the fall of Adam or any other evidence of the fallen nature of man. God isn't making it up as he goes along. It is all going according to plan. Then he offers these bullet points. God the Son had a relationship of love and fellowship with God the Father before the foundation of the world. John 17:24. The work of Jesus was ordained before the foundation of the world. 1 Peter 1:20. God chose his redeemed before the foundation of the world. Ephesians 1:4. Names are written in the book of life before the foundation of the world. Revelation 17, 8. And finally, the kingdom of heaven was prepared for the redeemed before the foundation of the world. Matthew 25, 34. So we're left with a picture of a divided an imbalanced world. Believers, by far the minority, refuse to worship the beast and will probably lose their lives for their faith. Unbelievers, the vast majority of the populace, gladly worship the beast and his father, Satan. And is that really so hard to imagine? After the events of this last week, is it so hard to picture an active majority that prefers lies over truth, evil over righteousness, deceit over veracity, violence over peace, Arrogance, blasphemy, and vulgarisms over civility and grace? 
It's not a stretch to say that we're now living through a prototype of the society in place during the Great Tribulation. Not as bad, no. But we get kind of a taste of it. We're surrounded by people who cling to evil, lies, vulgarities. Just imagine... The world has at long last united behind one religion, a truly ecumenical faith. Yet the object of worship in this one world religion is not even a god. This faith's god is a man, Antichrist. And by extension, a fallen angel, Satan. Verse 9, if anyone has an ear, let him hear. Everything, everywhere this command is seen in Scripture, it means that what has just been stated or what is about to be stated is important and requires spiritual discernment for understanding. God grant us that. So verse 10, what we are commanded to understand by means of the Spirit is admittedly a bit opaque. Here's the verse in the NASB. If anyone, of course, the best translation. (laughs) Never mind. If anyone is destined for captivity, to captivity he goes. If anyone kills with the sword, with the sword he must be killed. Here is the perseverance and the faith of the saints. The primary question that needs to be answered is this. Does this proverb speak to believers or their persecutors? The answer affects how we interpret this. But since under either answer the two statements are empirically true, I will offer both and let you decide. That's a cowardly way out. In their respective translations, most of the more modern versions favor the first, while the King James versions favor the second. The NASB is the most confusing, for it seems to mix the two. Although this can be resolved, the NASB and the NASB, to its credit, it's one reason I like the NASB, they're very generous in their margin notes. The NASB includes a margin notes for is destined for captivity that reads or leads into captivity. See, that's the difference. Are we destined for captivity or are we being led into captivity? Which makes a big difference whether you are a persecutor or the one being persecuted. So let's consider these two options. First, for persecuted believers. if we interpret it this way. These will be terrible times for followers of Christ. For Christians, Jew or Gentile, the testing of one's faith, James 1.3, will no longer be simply academic. That's what we're accustomed to, isn't it? Well, yes, we're persecuted because people frown at us or they write bad things about Christians. 
Now here, here the rubber meets the road. It'll no longer be academic. There will be a very real cost to remaining steadfast to one's faith, death. Probably an ugly death. Even though on the ground it may not seem so, God remains in control. If God wills for you captivity, then go to captivity. Those being pursued and persecuted should not fight back with the sword. For then, with the sword, he must be killed. See, so this is, this is from the angle, from the perception of the persecuted believers, where it, we, it, takes, it, it assumes that this verse is speaking to Christians. And it's saying, if they're, if they're putting you in jail, don't resist. Just, if you're destined for captivity, go. If you're going to be killed, you're going to be killed. Don't fight back. And don't fight back with the sword. Then you really will die by the sword. Or as the ESV and NIVs have it, if God wills for you to be killed with the sword, then it's going to happen in that way. The last sentence of the verse seems to reinforce this interpretation. Here is the perseverance and the faith of the saints. That tracks. We don't have to work hard at all to understand how that fits in with this. This is what it means in these hard times to follow Christ, who, while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. 1 Peter 2.23. That's what this verse is saying if it's being interpreted for those being persecuted, believers. Now, if it's speaking to persecutors, the bad guys, the King James versions interpret this differently, but that interpretation is true as well. Here's the new King James. He who leads into captivity shall go into captivity. Boy, are you going to get it. That's what it's saying. He who kills with the sword must be killed with the sword. Here is the patience and the faith of the saints. Now, this, at least that first part, that's clear. If you throw innocent believers in jail, you'll end up there yourself. If you kill them by the sword, you too will be killed by the sword. There's going to be a comeuppance. There will be justice. There will be retribution. It makes no difference if ultimately God is behind all this. If you've been a willing participant, you will pay the penalty for your crimes against the faithful. Because we might wonder, about, well, well, now wait a minute. God's the one ordaining this. He's the one sanctioning this. So he's going to punish them? Well, yes, he's done that a number of times in the Old Testament. We saw this played out in the Old Testament when Babylon invaded Judah and Jeremiah and the other prophets cried out, hey, what's the deal here? We're your people. They're the bad guys. What are you doing, God? That's a lample paraphrase. Sure, we've been rebellious and disobedient, but we're your people. We're your family. They're the bad guys. Get them. God says, don't worry. There'll be retribution for them. But right now I'm using them to chastise you, Judah. And the same thing will happen during the Great Tribulation. 
In this case, the last sentence has less obvious application. It may be saying something like, this is what it means to patiently endure for the faith. The, 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 it's harder to understand the context, the, the last sentence in the context of this. Walverd writes this, In this ultimate triumph and judgment upon wicked men lie the patience and faith of the saints in their hour of trial. The scriptures frequently mention this final vindication, and he cites a number of passages, two of which we'll look at in just a moment. He continues, The same truth which serves as an encouragement to the saints acts as a warning to their persecutors. Their ultimate doom is assured, as in this case, at the end of their brief period of power. That's Walvard. So God is just doing the same thing he's always done. He says, yeah, they're bad guys, but I'm using them now to accomplish what I want to have accomplished. This is, what I, this is the condition of the world I want to be in place when my son returns. Don't worry, they'll get their comeuppance, and they will. Now, these are two of the passages Walverd cites. Matthew 5, 38, 39, Jesus said this. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. Matthew 26, 51 to 52, in the Garden of Gethsemane. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus reached and drew out his sword and struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, put your sword back into place. For all those who take up the sword shall perish by the sword. In conclusion... Before we move on in our next session to the beast from the earth, the false prophet, let's make sure we have a clear picture of who his boss is, the beast, Antichrist. Over the centuries, many fanciful notions have been offered for his identity. Uh, evil historical figures such as Nero, Caligula, Adolf Hitler or Judas Iscariot, either reincarnated or resurrected, or even kept alive all these years. Uh, uh, at least one commentator I've referenced throughout this study uh, believes that Judas Iscariot is the final Antichrist. Or not an individual at all, but a system, a government, or empire. The revived Roman Empire, in other words. That's, that's Antichrist. A literal, angelic, or otherwise supernatural being conjured by Satan. My position is that Antichrist is none of these, but a literal human being, who rises to power by Satan's sanction. 
He is supernatural, as is the false prophet, only in that he is indwelt and given special powers by Satan. Clearly, it's not a simple human being doing all that he does in the eschaton. Same goes for the false prophet. They work miracles. They do magic. But all those powers come from Satan. They are literally indwelt by Satan and they're given special powers by him. Just as in every believer it is all of Christ, the beast's abilities are all of Satan. But he is a man by birth. Now in our next session, we'll be looking at the false prophet, verses 11 to 18. The beast from the earth. Father God, these are hard things to understand, and we once again call upon your Spirit to explain it to us, to translate it, to write its truth onto our hearts and our minds. We want to understand, Father God. We want to know. We want to know everything that you allow us to know. We know that there will be mysteries remaining until we see you face to face, but everything we can know, we want to know. We want to know your truth. Help us in that regard. In Jesus' name, amen.